Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 82. Full timestamp, day 6, late morning. Greetings, my esteemed co-researchers. If you're wondering why I didn't lecture you more yesterday, it's because I was being a complete idiot to the point where I don't actually want to talk about it. Is that dignified of me? No. Having established this point, let us now continue with exploring further into probability. So far, we've talked about two of probabilities. Let's call them law fragments. The baseline term won't translate easily, if at all. The first law fragment was that, if you're rating how likely things are to happen or be true, even if it's just on a scale from 1 to 12 where nothing on the scale is labeled, it still seems pretty reasonable that you can't say, it's more likely that strictly more, propositions, things are true, even if the scale isn't labeled enough that we know where to put a chance that's half some other chance, it can't be less likely that we have beef for lunch than that we have beef for lunch and a spun coin lands queen. Keltham has of course returned Carissa's gold coin to her by this point. You can tell because he still has cleric powers. He has now exchanged some of his platinum for gold, silver, and copper, and has his own coins about him. Even if you're Ione and can predict the coin flips, beef and queen cannot be more likely than beef, whether or not queen and you might think this law fragment so obvious and trivial as to be useless. But in fact, most of you collectively, perhaps not all individually, who can say, must have been thinking in a way that violated the principle. The second law fragment I taught you was incomplete, because I'm running through all of these things way too fast to get to proof-of-concept profits as early as possible. We could say that this fragment is about comparing estimates of how likely things are to what actually happens. It generalizes the way that, for example, actually I should just quickly run through this earlier part, because you wouldn't have heard it explicitly even if you understood implicitly, because Galarian. Keltham first writes on the wall whiteboard, Keltham is now holding a silver coin in his left hand. He then obtains a silver coin to go alongside the copper one, showing both to the class, mixes them behind his back, selects one in his left hand, and holds that out as a fist. What is truth? Keltham then asks the class. And in particular, what is the truth value of the sentence I just wrote? I'm not asking whether it's true or false. You don't know that right now. I'm asking what it means to say that the sentence is true or false. That seems like such an unfair question. When someone says, this is true, they mean, I want you to believe it. It seems like not a Dothalani answer. Blank looks, check. It's okay. You're probably using this fragment of law correctly. You just don't know it to yourself. I should probably be playing some sort of game to make this point, but all the ones I know are literally aimed at five-year-olds and would be excruciatingly slow. So... You're maintaining, in your own mind, something like the scaffolding Carissa used to reach out to her spell silver between my hand and the writing on this wall, only much less complicated than Carissa's scaffold and also the correspondence is something represented inside you, rather than out in the air, where you can see it with detect magic. If there's a silver in my hand, right now, you'd say the writing on the wall is true. If there's a copper in my hand, or for that matter nothing, you'd say the writing on the wall is false. Or if you wanted to be more precise about it yet, 
you'd say that the meaning of the writing, or the claim the writing talks about in Taldane, is false. When your mind maintains a correspondence of this type, it does a ton of intricate work in the background. For example, Keltham opens his hand, showing that in there is a copper coin, and then replaces it with a silver one. First you learn that the writing on the wall was false, and then the writing suddenly turned true. How can this be? Is truth unstable? No, it's that the word now, in the phrase Keltham is now holding, is a powerful word in terms of the scaffolding your mind builds. Carissa decided while she was building her scaffold to move the spell silver a little further away, and then stretched her scaffold to reach out to it. The scaffold of meaning between my hand and the wall, writing, as your mind maintains it, instructed by that word now, is something that constantly slides through time. In every moment of time, the wall writing has a different meaning. There is a different fact in the world that makes it be true or false, because it is talking about the contents of my hand in that moment of time. According to the scaffolding your mind is maintaining inside itself, it's not that the writing on the wall is so complicated and powerful, but that you are. To extent that meaning is fixed, it always has fixed truth or falsity. To the extent it seems like truth or falsity is unstable, we can always deduce that it's the meaning that's really unstable, that something's wrong in the scaffold we build in our minds, not that reality itself has anything being simultaneously so and not so. Blink, 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 blink. This is going to be one of those lessons where everyone's scared to talk because heresy, aren't they? Is there something you're saying that isn't captured by statements are true if they describe how the world actually is and not otherwise? If it sounds like I'm saying something stupidly simple, you probably understood it right. Yeah. The point is to be explicitly aware of the scaffolding your mind builds, which is something that other understandings build upon. For example, Keltham reaches behind his back, mixes coins, puts one into his left hand. If I now say there's a 50-100 probability that there's a silver coin in my left hand, is that true? Is it false? I mean, to us, there might be that, but Nethys knows, says Gregoria, and it's one way or the other. Hmm, yes, and actually, let me close my eyes for a moment. Keltum closes his eyes, opens his hand to show the contents, closes his hand, opens his eyes again. If any of you now say that there's a 1-2 probability the coin in my hand is silver, you'd be wrong. Actually, in this case, lying. But if I say the coin has 1-2 probability of being silver, I'm being honest. How can this be? It's the same hand in both cases. How can the same words be dishonest when spoken by one person, and honest when spoken by another? You're sort of saying as far as I know when you say stuff about how likely something is. Gregoria keeps going carefully. Being right is more than just being honest. If I said I was certain my left hand contained a gold coin, you could determine whether I was being honest just by examining my own brain, if you had magic for doing that, or if you're Nethys. It's so incredibly convenient for these lectures that your world has one of those, by the way. The point is that you don't have to look inside my hand at all to determine whether I'm being honest. If I say there's a gold coin inside my hand, and I believe that because I suddenly went insane a few seconds ago, I'm being honest. You have to look inside my hand to determine whether I'm right. When I say that the coin in my hand is one half likely to be silver, I'm honestly reporting my state of knowledge about what's in it. 
other people can have different states of knowledge that they could also report honestly. In the scaffolding we construct, my probability of this coin being silver is not just a fact about the coin. It's a fact about me and what I know. If I don't know whether this coin is silver or copper, that's not a fact about the coin. It's a fact about me. The coin itself is just silver or copper. Only people, only minds, can ever be uncertain. Reality just is. If I've got a map of a city, you've got maps here, right? And part of the map is left blank. That just means I don't know what's there. It's not that I go into the city and find a huge emptiness where the blank section of map is. Of which it is also said in Dath Ilan, All confusion and dismay exists in the mind, not in reality, for a blank map does not correspond to a blank territory. All of this seems like it is sort of coming in sideways to the main way truth is complicated in Cheliacs, which is that you shouldn't believe heretical things. Like, where do you put heresy in that framework? It's a thing in the territory that makes mortals be worse and stupider. It's a map error. It's a translation error between reality and your map. The class is silent. Do you have an example of a way people get confused if they don't understand that? Well, you could take a class of high-disagreeability six-year-olds and expose them to different information about the same play mystery and see if you could get them to shout at each other about how they were lying about the probabilities. Or actually, possibly there's a simple thing that I guess people in Galarian actually could be doing wrong if they haven't had any training, which is thinking you believe a bunch of sentences where your scaffolding is broken to the point where you can't even take the sentence and figure out what is it in the outer world beyond the sentence itself, that would make them be true, or false, or righter, or wronger. See what's the equivalent of Keltham's left hand and now, and the kind of coin that has to be inside it. If you were six-year-olds, I could come in and very sincerely tell you about which animals were or weren't wakalixes, and test you on which animals were or weren't wakalixes to make sure you could repeat the answer correctly, and then mix you with a different class of six-year-olds who'd been told different animals were wakalixes by a different teacher, and see how long we could manipulate you into fighting about whose teacher had probably been more trustworthy or honest before anybody realized that they had no idea what it even meant for anything to be a wakalix that their scaffolding wasn't reaching out to any fact in reality that could make the sentences be true or false, that they just memorized what the teacher had said and repeated it back without it having meant anything. This being one of the ways that kids are taught to notice explicitly and speak up when they haven't understood what the ass somebody was talking about, instead of trying to memorize the sentence and repeat it back. And then for the rest of your learning... You're going to be up against teachers who try to throw subtler and subtler, meaningless or underspecified statements into your education to see if anyone calls them out on it. Carissa is pretty sure she hates this lesson already. I'm not immediately thinking of any wakalixes. I mean, there are lots of monsters where all I know about them is a page in a textbook, but someone put that page in because we might have to kill them. Actually, now that I think about it, I should maybe have delayed that lesson until after everyone has been tapped with Owl's Wisdom, in case it's the sort of thing where Owl's Wisdom lets you notice a bunch of stuff you thought you believed that was actually meaningless, and we want less cumulative personality impact from all the things like that, which are allowed to build up between wisdom boosts. Though I wouldn't actually expect much impact from that. 
I mean, if it's meaningless, it's probably not built into the core of your personality or important to your motivations or anything. Why is she terrified? I don't know. There are people who build their entire personality around avenging the death of their wife at the hands of goblins or something, and I could imagine tapping them with an owl's being pretty soul-shocking because of realizing it's meaningless. But mostly, that kind of thing happens in lawless places. I don't see why it'd be meaningless. I mean, it might be not the wisest thing to do given costs and benefits, but it's not meaningless. You can look at the world and see whether or not it's true that somebody's wife actually got killed by goblins. You can look at the world and see whether those goblins are dead yet. If you're driven to make the goblins be dead because they killed your wife, then the content, the meaning, of that drive inside you either isn't true or false in the first place, or we have to build a complicated scaffolding about it to see how it's true or false in a complicated way. Ione is worried if she's maybe the only person in this classroom who can think about this clearly enough to do something before all the Asmodeans have their minds explode. And the problem is, she can't actually figure out what she's supposed to do about it. Though, maybe as one of Lord Nethys's own, it's heresy for her to prevent things from exploding. But is this a kind of explosion that Lord Nethys finds pleasing to him? Okay, then yeah, I don't know any meaningless things people do, offhand. There are worshippers of Aridin, the dead god. But I think that's wrong rather than meaningless. Like, I think they think he's not dead. I mean, you're not six years old. I'd expect you to at least notice the Wakalix's thing if somebody ran that on you. Even without knowing the law fragment of meaning scaffolds explicitly to yourself, I think you'd notice if you were in a classroom and the teachers were getting you to repeat back. Things where you just had no idea what they even meant. Uh, if this is a kind of thing where it maybe possibly makes people's minds explode harder if they go too long between Owl's Wisdoms, we should maybe go back to the probability stuff and wait until everybody's had an Owl's Wisdom once before picking this up again, says Ione. It had better not also be her job to figure out what Asmodeus's priests need to tell everybody, or do to them, in the window before this lesson resumes, so that they don't explode too hard later. Ione could already be treading perilously close to Nethysian heresy, for all she actually knows about Lord Nethys's laws, in trying to make something explode later, or giving somebody else a chance to partially soften it. Fair. Why rely on the thing's probable safety when you can just not do the thing, as the saying goes? Some tension leaves the room. It probably goes in a more general lesson on how to notice wacky stuff inside you that took root somewhere because you thought other people wanted you to believe it. And more generally, the difference between what you think you believe and what you actually... She interrupts their teacher. After everybody gets their first owl's wisdom, Keltham... And maybe then slowly, if it's the sort of thing that even maybe, possibly, builds up between Owl's Wisdoms. Right. Fair. Ione wants due credit for this. It's not actually in the terms of her agreement with the Asmodeans that she has to shield their sanity from Keltham. Teaching in Dathilan sounds like it's a lot better than here. You end up spending lots of time memorizing meaningless stuff just because you didn't pay close enough attention to the part that made it meaningful, Gregoria says. And the student assessment methods missed this as a problem, because... Subject change back to probability now. Ione interrupts their teacher a second time in the same lesson. Right. Somehow this is deeply and strangely satisfying. She's going to need to... What is she even going to need to do? She's going to need to have the lesson in advance, preemptively. 
that's what to do. Have a big heresy session where everyone says heretical things. Should be fun. Before she does that, she's going to need to try an owl's wisdom herself and get to the question of why she's so scared. Maybe under supervision. Message to Ione. Acknowledged. Anyways, the law fragment you learned yesterday is about building a scaffold between probabilities and the thing that determines how right you were. If I say I put one-two probability on my hand holding silver, to determine whether I'm being honest, Nethys just has to examine my brain and see if I'm honestly saying what I think the chances, or if I'd bet fifty-one hundred under a lawful scoring rule and not look at my hand at all. To determine the equivalent of whether I'm right, to say how right I am, you have to build a scaffold in your mind, from my saying one-half to my hand, and then you don't say true or false, right or wrong. If I actually am holding silver, you say that my loss was one factor of two, or one bit to use the baseline term. And this does involve concepts that people aren't just born with, which is why you want to understand the scaffold consciously and explicitly, rather than taking it for granted as something you'll do instinctively correctly. If instead we were just using scales from 1 to 12, with no common reference points, to understand what somebody else meant by their rating, well, it would still seem pretty plausible that strictly more complex events should not be rated as more likely. But there'd be no obvious way to take the scaffold from the probability assignment to my hand and say how right I'd been exactly. That's one way of seeing why somebody sending out merchant ships might have trouble figuring out what to do with the claim. If you said the chance of a ship making it back was 9 on a scale from 1 to 12. And now that probabilities actually mean something to us, and aren't just wakalixes unto us. Now that such thought is bound to reality in the explicit sight of metathought, we can consider more law fragments about what to do with probabilities once we have them. How does he actually bootstrap to the inverse probability theorem? He learned that way too long ago for him to remember what he got taught before what else. It's kind of hard for him to remember what it's like to not know it. Well, they're not getting any more enlightened by him not saying anything, so he should just start saying things. Maybe start with the informal, and state an informal law fragment before trying to formalize it. That's usually the order in which things are taught. Keltham prestidigitates the wall clear. He then starts to sketch a Dathalani murder mystery game, aimed at sufficiently young children that going through the motions of guessing the key statistics and multiplying odds won't just seem trivial and boring to them. The owner of a house far away from any other houses, a man named Body, has been discovered dead, the discoloration of his body suggesting poisoning. His head is missing, so this isn't a truly awful crime. The surreptitious head removers were evidently notified duly in advance, and properly called in by the murderer. And in real life you're obviously supposed to ignore any information you get as a result about this crime having been premeditated, or the poisoning not just being accidental, but it's said for the sake of the game to obviously be a murder, even before taking into account the missing head. I now have additional questions, says Peranza. Well, if you commit a murder, not that you're supposed to, but if you do decide to defect from civilization to that extent, you would obviously still want your murder victim to go into the deep cold so they don't get deprived of their future. Most people, when they commit murder, want somebody out of the way for now. They don't want to destroy the person's soul. So there's a government service that murderers can call in to get the heads of their victims properly taken away for suspension, immediately after the victim dies. And since civilization absolutely does not want to disincentivize murderers from calling in this service... 
They're trained to come in without leaving any clues for the police that might make life harder on the murderer. And if they accidentally leave a clue anyways, the police would obviously ignore it. These are the surreptitious head removers, drawn from civilization's reserve of law-abiding psychopaths, asterisk to be people who are emotionally well-suited to come in, possibly watch an innocent person die without helping them, immediately after remove their head in a way that doesn't create any additional mess for the murderer to clean up, not get drawn into any conversations with the murderer, and get out without anybody noticing them. This does mean that civilization's rare murder cases will often involve a fairly lengthy court case to prove that somebody found with their head missing was in fact murdered, but this is the price of otherwise optimal policy. Asterisk. Taldane, of course, does not have a precise term corresponding to baseline's law-abiding psychopath, which is distinct by syllables from baseline criminal psychopath, to emphasise how much these are importantly different kinds of people. Keltham says, lawful, not emotionally caring people. The thing that immediately comes to mind is that civilization is obviously lying, and obviously if you call in the surreptitious head removers, they arrest you. Five days ago, she would have been sure of it. Now, she's not sure. Maybe in Dothilan, maybe people really do have that much of the law in them. How do you know they don't just lie to you about what happens if you call, says Yaisa. What, and not show up to take the person's head? Why would they do that? No, and arrest you for planning a murder. If anybody found out that had happened, governance would be overthrown roughly 30 seconds later. Because if the government isn't lawful, you... Expect that everyone else. Sorry, I'm confused. Carissa feels like she's supposed to be confused, but isn't. They train everyone to overthrow the government if it ever does anything less than perfectly lawful. And normally that would result in a population that rebels constantly and ends up like Galt, but... But that's because Golarion can't make governments lawful like that, and Doth Elon can. And their government knows those are the rules, so they're always lawful. Right? They're obviously not perfectly lawful, but people with the power to plausibly, successfully remove governance will hold governance to some standard they think is reasonable. In Dathilan, everyone over 13, or who passes a test earlier, shares that power while the meta-level structure holds, and governance being able to run a service like the surreptitious head removers, which protects people from the equivalent of Abaddon, in an approximately lawful fashion without gross violations, endangering the dead of being lost, is one standard to which we hold them. You, I assume, as wizards with some combat potential, would at some point start to try to hold your governance to account. Say if they developed soul-destroying magical weapons and started permanently slaughtering everybody, starting with Asmodeus's clerics, like if you thought they were doing badly even for Galarian. Frozen silence? Yes, but describing under what conditions you'd overthrow the government makes cooperating to overthrow the government easier, so it's... Not illegal, because I say so right this minute, but looked at like asking your friends under what conditions they'd agree to help you poison your wife and make it look like an accident. We have a lot of overthrown governments, so people's expectations are different than they'd be somewhere where it's just a hypothetical. Also, it wouldn't be not allowed by Galerion rules for someone to note down who said, yeah, Absolutely, I'd overthrow the government if I thought they were any worse than I think they are now, and not put them in charge of any amassing an independent power base. 
Why wouldn't you ask your friends under what conditions they'd agree to help you poison your wife and make it look like, oh, because your friends might think you were actually planning that, as opposed to running thought experiments on them? Yes, correct. That is why. Keltum. Her thought transcript is going to be nothing but Keltum, and thoughts cut off before they become heresies and thoughts not cut off fast enough. I don't think you actually realize how bad it can get when governments are overthrown, not by carefully executed pacts planned with the Church of Asmodeus, Ioni says. Because it's going to look weird if just Sevar is holding up this whole conversation and the Asmodians are all too terrified to think through what they'd be saying in Alter Cheliacs. People are careful talking about it, the same way you maybe wouldn't want to go around suggesting that surreptitious head removers arrest people who call them. And I think we were also supposed to learn something about probability at some point. I have additional questions myself about what kind of horrible Galarian equilibrium is causing people to, I'm guessing, systematically vastly overestimate how much of a better outcome they can get by overthrowing their current governments, and how the solution to this is apparently nobody ever talking about those hypotheticals. But yes, we were supposed to do probability. I'm actually kind of flailing here in the back of my mind, because I'm realizing that when Dath Ilani kids play the murder mystery game, there's known objective numbers for things like how many professional chemists versus non-chemists have particular poison ingredients in their possession, so when the kids guess that, you can tell them afterwards how well they objectively did at estimating statistics like that. And you can't possibly guess those statistics for Dath Ilan, and I won't know the correct answers relative to any statistics you guess about Golarion. Okay, you know, simpler Golarion murder mystery. You'll just make up the key numbers, and we won't have any idea afterwards who was right. If two of you disagree, oh well. Meritzel is found dead in her bedroom tomorrow, and for some reason, governance wants to know who did it immediately, instead of waiting to raise her. Also, she didn't make afterlife arrangements, so they can't just call her in hell immediately. Wow, murder mysteries around here must be a lot less interesting a lot of the time. Anyways, the two suspects are Keltham and Carissa, the only two people who had security clearances that could have enabled them to access Meritzel's bedroom during the time in question. Meritzel, obviously, was murdered by a lantern archon. Keltham is known to have summoned Monster III among his accessible cleric spells, when it comes to Carissa, we'd have to ask how likely a recently fourth-circle wizard was to have that exact spell in her spellbook. Uh, unless there's obvious other ways to cast it, like from a scroll, but this was obviously a spellbook Lantern Archon, rather than a scroll. Lantern Archon. And also, nobody's allowed to just look in her spellbook. Bear with me here. I haven't constructed Galarian murder mysteries before. Neither Keltham nor Carissa have any known motive to slay Meritzel. However, Carissa was observed by Ione, assumed honest for these purposes, to have gotten into some sort of angry-looking argument with Meritzel the previous day, though Ione wasn't able to overhear the details. What can we say about who likely did it, and how would we say that? We're assuming here you can both beat a truth spell somehow and are denying it. Yes. Yes, we are assuming that. And the Forbiddance wasn't a thing, which is why Lantern Archons are summonable. I think it was Keltham, says Tanya. I mean, realistically, Sivar. But sure, I'll ask. Why Keltham? Because murdering Meritzel is a really weird thing to do, and Keltham does a lot of really weird things, while Carissa doesn't do really weird things. 
I think it's Keltham, because having a summoned outsider kill someone is the kind of thing you do if you have an instinctive aversion to killing them face to face yourself. Which Keltham probably does because he's from Dathilan, and which I don't because demons can wear human faces if they care to. Keltham doesn't particularly notice that it's Carissa, the other suspect, arguing that Keltham did it. This is obviously meta-Carissa, not suspect Carissa talking. Everyone's normal from their own perspective, and in civilization, I do rather get the impression killing people is considered much less normal than it is in Galarian. On the other hand, yes, my thought processes are relatively alien to you, so if a weird thing happens, you might assume I was the one more likely to do it. And when it comes to murders, if you can avoid killing somebody face to face, who you know is getting resurrected a day later, you'd probably do it that way whether you were Keltham or Carissa, so you're less likely to get caught. Let's say for purposes of thought experiment that all those considerations exactly cancel out. In fact, if we didn't know anything about the argument Ione saw, or know that the murderer could summon a lantern archon, and we just knew that Meritzel was killed by somebody not face to face, we would have thought that Keltham and Carissa were exactly equally likely to be the murderer. Where do we go from there? Try to get them to confess says Gregoria after a pause to consider whether they do this in Taldor. Surprisingly, whichever of Keltham and Carissa is the murderer does not seem to find it to be the optimal course of action, given their own self-interests, to politely tell you that they did it. I think the criminal justice process in Dathelan must be really different. On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, I would have if anything guessed it would be different in the opposite direction. Is this an Intelligence 10 thing, where actually lots of murderers will just say yes, if the police ask them whether they committed the murder? I'm not trained in interrogations, but at least in the popular understanding, you tie them to a chair and shake them around a little and tell them you've already got it figured out, but it'll go easier for them if they admit it than if they keep denying it, and ask them questions from slightly different angles and point out contradictions in what they said and maybe hit them, and they have a hard time thinking about their long-term self-interest. I suspect this is in fact a different experience at 18 Intelligence and whatever I turn out to have in the way of wisdom and other stuff your system can't measure at all. If you already had it figured out, you wouldn't need to tie me to a chair. The claim is completely implausible. Asking me questions from slightly different angles can be done without tying me to a chair. Pointing out contradictions in what I said is stupid, you should let me keep talking without telling me how I'm giving myself away, the same way I didn't speak up immediately when I realized the people around me had suddenly acquired arcane sight, just in case that was being hidden for some actually interesting reason. Hitting me does not seem particularly likely to shift how much I consider my long-term interest, except insofar as I decide that I clearly have a very strong long-term interest in certain parts of governance ceasing to exist. I hope I don't need to point out that if we're considering applying enough pain matched to a light enough penalty for the actual crime, that somebody who yields to threats thinks it's in their direct interest to confess this is exactly as likely to work on innocent people as guilty people. Unless the true murderer is known in advance to have information they can give up, such that the police can verify with near certainty that the confession was true. Otherwise, it's isomorphic to offering somebody a thousand gold pieces to confess to a crime whose penalty is a hundred gold piece fine. Sure, the guilty party will confess, and so will any innocent ones. 
you're putting them in a situation which isn't a lawful scoring rule. You're not offering maximum reward for true confessions, distinct from false confessions, and you shouldn't expect the words people say to communicate anything. Unless you think you're supposed to tell the truth, even when somebody has tied you to a chair and is hitting you? In civilization, it would just be considered obvious that this is not a cooperative setup where you have an interest in your words being heard as meaning things. You mostly want for the situation you're in to not exist in the first place. So everyone will just try to trash the setup as hard as possible. Again, not trained in interrogations, but I think people do lie. But the lies you tell if you're innocent and the lies you tell if you're guilty are not the same. The details you make up, stuff like that. Carissa doesn't know. Maybe interrogation in Taldor is in fact totally ineffective. It wouldn't be very surprising. Yes, it's the same way in civilization. Innocent people don't always talk exactly the same way as guilty ones. That is in fact why police in civilization talk to suspects in crimes, even if people won't just politely tell you they did it. Except that in civilization, the police don't hit all suspects, including the innocent ones, thereby maintaining a cooperative stance with the innocent parties, but not the guilty one, which incentivizes everyone except the actual guilty party to give the police as much actually true information as possible and forms a further factor distinguishing the guilty party's behavior, which helps the police distinguish them. Maybe that works better? I'm not strongly committed to our system working better, but that's how it's usually done here. Not if one of the two of us murdered Meritxell because this is an important government project and they would try harder than usual. Okay, you know what? I'm going to say this, even knowing exactly how much I'm tempting the tropes. If there is an actual criminal mystery around here, I am going to take charge of the investigation, and nobody is to do any hitting of anybody while we try it the Dathilani way first. I'll pass that along, says the security from the doorway, with no noticeable expression or emotion. Internally, of course, he is ranking all the girls by how much he wants to make sure not to miss their executions when this whole thing blows up. Probability, says Ione. Right. So, the general direction I was aiming for here was people starting to talk about how likely it would be that Carissa versus Keltham would be able to summon a lantern archon, or how much more likely Carissa is to get into an argument with Meritzel in worlds where Carissa committed the murder versus worlds where Carissa was innocent. It's possible, I am realizing, that this is less of an obvious next question if you haven't grown up hearing adults talking that way all the time. From the confused faces looking up at him, yeah, seems non-obvious. Do my eyes deceive me? Are the people who are actually confused, looking visibly confused enough that I, their teacher, have any idea of what's going on inside their minds? Thank you. It significantly helps, and I appreciate it. Now, those of you not looking confused, is that because you totally understood where I was going there? Or because you forgot to violate your usual habits and look confused on purpose? It's the second one. This is going to take some effort, actually. Gregoria is looking confused on purpose. It is kind of terrifying, but that's life on Project Lawful for you. I don't... See how Carissa and Meritzel having an argument is relevant to the probabilities at all. And I don't see how you could possibly get sure enough for it to make sense to do anything other than, uh, expensive fancy truth spells or whatever the crown keeps in store. The problem I'm having with thinking up simpler and more realistic examples is that I haven't been in Galarian long enough to learn a lot of probabilities and use them myself on problems with this structure. 
the cases where I've resorted to explicit reasoning of this form have been about weird, exotic things I couldn't figure out by simpler methods, like the timing of the Zon Kuthon attack relative to when I went outside the Forbiddance, or the implications if Carissa mysteriously failed to make her afterlife arrangements. Okay, a uh, hopefully much simpler example. Around what fraction of wizard students in your academy had intelligence 16, 17, 18? Most are 14, actually. Most top students are 16. 17 is rare, and 18 is even rarer. Side question. What are privacy customs and deliberate incentive structures around that info? Does everyone know everyone else's intelligence, or is the info concealed to force people to judge each other by their accomplishments, which are thereby more incentivized? Class rankings are posted. Students can say what they heard their intelligence was, but at the age when you're in school, it's not final. So you don't reliably know who's smartest, and you do know who is top of the class, says Meritzel. It's her. She is the top of the class. Suppose I asked you to guess. If you don't know, if you do know, that's obviously fine. What fraction of students in Ostenso Wizard Academy who graduate at all will later be determined to have intelligence 15, 16, or 17? More 15s than 16s and more 16s than 17s, says Meritzel. Because you start with way more and not that many wash out. Fifteen's plenty smart enough to be a good wizard. Numbers, Meritzel. I'm not asking you to be perfectly right. I'm asking you to guess, based on what you've seen in your wizard academy, that I haven't. Keltham has already estimated the ratios between plus two. Five SD plus three. Zero SD and plus three. Five SD in terms of their improbability, and the ratio should be something like fifteen. Five. One. It'll be ten fourteens, ten fifteens, a couple sixteens, maybe a seventeen. What was your total class size like? A little over two hundred in Ostenso. West Crown's bigger, I think. Quarantine's also bigger. And the population ratios should be... I've been unwisely trying to work this out inside my head, because it's more impressive that way, even if I have a higher chance of screwing up instead... Asterisk, 1, NT 18 to 6 or 7, INT 17S to 40. NT 16S to 200 INT, 15S to 650. INT 14S. So if you've got equal INT 14 and INT 15. Representation, then any individual INT 15 is about three times as likely to get admitted to Ostenso Wizard Academy than an INT 14. Does all that sound right? He'll write it down on the white wall, in case that helps. INT 18, 1, INT 17, 6, 7, INT 16, 40, INT 15, 200, INT 14, 650, asterisk. In particular, Keltham is unthinkingly treating their intelligence detector's integer output as a perfect floor name, function instead of a noisy round, function though it's not like he'd know that was wrong, and it gets him pretty close. That sounds about right, Meritzel says uncertainly. They admit the smartest. Wait, Asmodia says out loud. You just got to Galarian. How is that something you know? Oh, that's an interesting question. Why can't it just be another fragment of law that I know and you don't? By the way, Asmodia's not allowed to answer that question except by message to me. Somebody else has to try it instead. That's how it is in Dathilan says Gregoria, except with the numbers shifted like everyone's got a headband on, right? Heh. <laughs> I suppose that's actually a simpler answer than the one I had in mind. Why would those ratios be the same between Dath Elon and Galarian, though? 
what with us having a whole heritage optimization program and subsidies for kids expected to produce civilization-approved, positive externalities, and nutrition that doesn't vary much between kids. For the same mysterious reason both worlds have humans at all? Asmodia? If you'd had those numbers memorized, you wouldn't have needed to work them out in your head and risk getting them wrong. Asmodia states. So it has to be math. But it's the wrong kind of thing to be math. I can't figure out how to say it, but... The part about validity... It's not necessarily true across all possible worlds. You can coherently imagine a population or a wizard academy which looks different. So, you conclude, it can't be a validity. What math did you do? Or if you don't want to just tell me, can you show me what the calculations were, and then I can see if I can figure out from those what they mean? Asmodia could, without benefit of any detect thoughts, hear Meritzel thinking earlier about how she was top of the class in Ostenso, and Meritzel needs to be put back in her place. Actually, I did have some key results memorized, even though they were math results, and not about the ratios in Dathilan per se. If I had done calculations, they might have looked like, I didn't use this calculation exactly, but it's simpler and probably gives about the same answer. The definition of exponentiation is as follows. 2 raised to the power of 2 equals 4, 2 raised to the power of 3 equals 8, and 4 raised to the power of 2.5 equals 32. Next, we have the definition of the square root function. The square root of 9 is 3, the square root of 16 is 4, the square root of any number squared is the original number, and the square root of 2 is approximately 1.41421. Now let's define two mathematical constants. Pi is approximately 3.14159, and E, the base of the natural logarithm, is approximately 2.71828. Lastly, let's define a function called normal, in terms of x. The function is equal to 1 divided by the square root of 2 times pi, multiplied by e raised to the power of negative 1 half times x squared. In this context, int18 is approximately equal to the normal function, evaluated at 4. int17 is approximately equal to the normal function evaluated at 3.5. int16 is approximately equal to the normal function evaluated at 3. int15 is approximately equal to the normal function evaluated at 2.5 and int14 is approximately equal to the normal function evaluated at 2. I am not actually expecting you to figure this one out, Asmodia. It's several layers further into probability, and it would take multiple other concepts to understand what those numbers had to do with intelligence and Galarian. I'm only even writing it down on the white wall because, I mean, when you asked me that way, I couldn't have lived with myself if I hadn't shown you the calculations. What's actually in there is something like, a fragment of law that tells you a thing that is very likely true, given only very few premises. I could have used it to look at a room full of randomly selected people in Cheliacs, none of whom were unusually tall, and then estimated from that how many very tall people of a given height there'd be in Cheliacs. The people trying to write an alter Cheliacs history book had better be praying to Nethys, because that's the only way that plan is possibly going to work. This Carissa has actually encountered before, not in the standard curriculum for young wizards, which doesn't much digress into things they don't absolutely need to know, but at the World Wound, where wizards have a lot of long, boring weeks between raids to discuss other things. It's part of how intelligence is defined. The girls who haven't encountered it look very impressed, though. Note to self, talk to some mathematicians and see if other Keltham things are actually things. 
Galarion, just not this specific group of students, is already familiar with. Actually, now that I think about it, the reason I know a key constant here is that the wizard who teleported me to Cheliax from the World Wound seemed to know it. In particular, he knew what I was talking about when I asked about the square root of the average squared difference from the average over-intelligence. There's no reason he'd have known that for intelligence unless this particular concept was already known in Galarian, which means that, in fact, somebody somewhere in Cheliax knows substantially more math about probability than this class has ever heard of existing. I shall endeavor not to be distracted by trying to figure out how, what, why, huh and try to teach the basic layers of probability from a Dathilani perspective instead. But somebody should actually let me know if I'm improvising something more poorly than existing teaching methods teach it. You in particular, Isidre, I know you're reading the transcript on this. Isidre? Who's reading their transcripts named Isidre? Anyways, I'd now like a guess at a further parameter I can't easily calculate from first principles. The chance that a wizard ever makes it to fourth circle, depending on whether they started out in T15, in T16, or INT17. Meritzel or anyone? Meritzel does not know and is very annoyed about it. I'm not totally sure there are good statistics on that. The most famous wizards tend to have really high intelligence, though. Even though, in principle, you'd think a 15 with an expensive headband would have the same odds as a native 19 would. Not once the native 19 got a plus two headband, maybe. Also remind me at some point to explain my theory that intelligence is only one piece of what makes a really smart person, and native 19s probably have more of the other pieces than a 15 with a plus four headband. If you can give me any random numerical facts you know that seem like they might possibly be related to how intelligence affects wizard career attainment, I can see whether those random facts pin down the probable truth about the thing I want to know, given my background knowledge about how things likely fit together? People say that Nefredi Klopati is a native 21, but they might be making that up. People say that Aradin was at 35 before he ascended, having invented a dozen new kinds of enhancement more complicated than the existing ones to go past what was even understood to be possible. The first student in our year to make second circle was Aspex Laron, and he's an 18. You meet more native 16s at the world wound than native 15s or native 17s, and that's typically fifth circle casters or higher. The average age to third circle is 10 years, and it's known to be faster, but not lots faster, maybe six or eight years. If you're smarter, though also very smart people sometimes get stuck, and obviously this is conditional on you being at the world wound and using magic where it matters. The youngest fourth circle wizard in Cheliax is a native 18. They're plausibly not making it up about Nefredi. There should be approximately one native INT 21 in all of Galarian. I'm getting the impression Aridin was kind of a cool guy. Just to check, was he by any chance hinted to be from some mysterious other world? Because a lot of things I'm hearing about him sound like things a Dath Ilani would try. Keltham is writing something on the white wall while he asks this. Is one allowed to say nice things about Aridin? Who even knows anymore? I've never heard that, but he was mortal 8,000 years ago. There's a lot that isn't remembered. The ancient Aslanti might have been partway to civilization when they were destroyed. They're said to have invented a lot that isn't remembered. How long did it take him to become a god? 
If it was more than a couple of hundred years, he wasn't secretly a Doth Ilani. There's no way it'll take me that long if I can do it at all. Nervous giggles. He spent thousands of years mortal before he raised the Starstone from the sea, set the protections around it, and ascended, says Meritzel. Probably not one of my fellow flying machine passengers, then. That sounds more like how long you'd take if you weren't starting with civilization's knowledge and had to work out everything yourself the hard way, which, to be clear, is overwhelmingly more respectable than any career path I'd ever even consider. Carissa, more INT-15SS or INT-17S, among five Thiesa circles at the World Wound. I'm not sure, because the 17s are more likely to mention it, but I think more 17s. Suppose that among those who train to be wizards at all, there's 150 int 15s for every 50 int 16s, and every 10 int 17s. Suppose that 2% of the int 15s, 10% of the int 16s, and 40% of the int 17s become 5th circle wizards, and that all kinds of 5th circle wizard are equally represented at the world wound. What's the relative chance that a fifth circle you meet at the World Wound has native ENT-15 versus native ENT-17, if you know it's one of the two? Raise an open hand if you think you've got it. Closed hand if you think you're not going to get it. Three of the INT-15S make it, five of the INT-16S, four of the INT-17S. They all get it pretty quickly. A valid deduction, but not exactly the answer to the exact question I asked. What's the actual chance that they're an INT-17, given that it's that or INT-15? That barely even makes sense to think of as a separate problem. Seven wizards who are one or the other, four are INT-17 and three are INT-15, so three slash seven th and four slash seven th respectively. Paying attention to the exact question has sometimes been known to count for something in more complicated problems like these. Just saying. Suppose you didn't know that somebody from your class was going to make fifth circle wizard. If they were just a random person from your class, what would be the chance that they were an INT-15 versus INT-17? 15 to 1. What's that in chances out of 100 that they're INT-17? Around 6%. Well, suppose we were trying to solve an old murder mystery, Death at Ostenso Academy, which happened 40 years back. We've got a piece of evidence that their INT was between 15 and 17. Another piece of evidence rules out all the INT-16S because they were all taking a specialized class at the time. Going on priors, I think maybe priors would be the best Taldane translation. We'd say there was only a 6% chance of the murderer being an INT-17 because most students at Ostenso Academy aren't INT-17S. However, now suppose we get a new piece of evidence about a later murder, clearly connected to the old one, which appears to have been committed by a fifth-circle wizard who served at the world wound. Suppose, somebody says, that both murders were committed by the same person. In that case, we now think that the previous murder was likely committed by an INT-17 student, with probability of 57% for that and 43% for INT-15. They follow the logic, or are again hiding that they don't. It's been... Difficult for me to present this properly, I think, because I'm new to Golarian and don't know what problems would make a good point of it. But there's a way of thinking that sees everything in probabilities that shift as you learn new things, because of how facts are entangled with other facts. Knowing that somebody made fifth circle doesn't tell us their intelligence for certain, but at INT-17, it's four times as likely than at INT-16, and twenty times as likely than INT-15. 
at least based on these numbers I made up, though not ungroundedly so, since even these made-up numbers were constrained by math. I knew for the probable shape of the general population curves for how many int 17 versus int 15 s combined with Carissa's observation that there's more int 16 s than 15 s or 17 s among world-wound five the circles, and slightly more 17 s than 15 s. If you only take into account the facts that overwhelmingly determine an answer, you'll miss an awful lot of facts and observations that shift probabilities, a noticeable amount, even if they don't shift them to 99 hundredths. If you consider the original murder mystery I tried to offer you, what a daith Ilani kid would have known to do, based on the way their parents talk, or some implicit aspect of previous training that I'm too young to remember and see the implications of, would be to ask about the probability that Carissa could have summoned a lantern archon compared to Keltham being known to be able to do so. Or how likely it is that, if you imagine the world where Carissa is the murderer, that she got into a heated argument with Meritzel about something the previous day, compared to the world where there was nothing to murder Meritzel about. We might say that the Priors make Keltham and Carissa equally likely so far as we know. We guess that Carissa is half as likely to have summon monster third in her spellbook compared to Keltham's certainty of being able to pray for it and that Carissa is four times as likely to have something to argue about with Meritzel if we imagine ourselves in the world where she had some reason to kill Meritzel compared to the world where Keltham had some reason to kill Meritzel. Then what's the chance that Carissa versus Keltham killed Meritzel, so far as we know? Two-thirds? From saying that it's twice as likely to be Carissa as Keltham, which is what those numbers multiplied out to. Not bad, though we should have remembered to ask for raised hands instead of just the answer. Yep. Though it's important to remember that, in that case, the numbers really are ones I just made up. Contrast to the way where I had a prior guess about the shape of the intelligence distribution in the population from 14S to 18S, which matched up neatly with what Meritzel said about 15S versus 16S in the Wizard Academy. And then I asked for any relevant facts, and Carissa had some notion of who you run into at the Worldwound. My numbers were all compatible with those facts, which, if this were an actual mystery, might make them more able to support the weight of reasoning with them. Now a warning. Until you've honed your ability to make up numbers and have them be constrained by other facts, you know, you might be better off with your brain just feeling intuitively that some things make Carissa more or less likely to be the murderer— and not trying to know legibly to yourself what your brain is thinking. If you make up a number like, Carissa is 50% likely to be able to cast Summon Monster the Three, and that number wasn't visibly constrained by any other facts, you know, it's possible you might be better off by rating it on a scale from 1, 12 that you know doesn't actually mean anything, say, and letting your brain's intuitions take care of the rest. But this entire realm of thought is the realm that generalizes the notion of validity that I told you about before. It's the realm of what is valid to say about uncertainty and things that might happen, which is most of what we ever want to think about. The law of that realm is the mathematics of probability. So to navigate an uncertain world lawfully, for whatever the law is worth to mortals there, you learn to cast detect probability and then greater makeup probability and eventually end up with permanent probability sight. And that's common in Dathilan? Thinking of everything that way and being right? 
Right isn't how the scaffold from reality to probabilistic belief works. Remember, we lose fewer 2s. We don't bother putting probabilities on things almost certain to happen or not happen, like a mountain being in the same place as yesterday. If it's not important enough to spend a lot of time thinking about it and making up numbers, we don't spend the time to think about it. We use the more complicated disciplines where some point matters a lot, and it's uncertain. To give a recent example, I've been trying to work out whether, or to what degree, the forces that landed me here chose a universe where I'd end up in a particular kind of weird situation. And I guess that Chelish governance was something like three times more likely to just immediately inform me that Pilar had gone to Elysium, instead of making me figure that out for myself, if they weren't being messed with by forces like that. It's a terrible example for lessons purposes, because it's weird and complicated, but it being weird and complicated is exactly why I started deploying explicit numbers, instead of just relying on my wordless intuition to do the mostly right thing. I don't want to overstate how important this kind of reasoning is to, say, figuring out metallurgy, because when you're working metals, you mainly want to find tricks that work all the time, rather than 30% of the time. You don't actually want to be sticking around in the realm of non-extreme probabilities. But if you're trying two different smelting processes with inconsistent outputs, this is the branch of reasoning you'd use to figure out how many tests you needed to run to be pretty sure of your conclusion, and neither jump to a conclusion too early, nor run a lot of tests you didn't need. Oh, and there's also a class of incredibly huge blatant mistakes that are a lot easier to spot once you have any law of probability, like the ways you can get mortals to violate, uh... There's duck for lunch because Keltham asked for it, being less probable than there's duck for lunch. There's more stuff like that. But all of those uses are secondary to the idea that these are universal laws governing uncertainty, whether or not you're thinking about them explicitly and using them explicitly, whether or not your implicit reasoning is operating correctly. It's not like you can lose fewer 2s by just thinking in a sort of wordless way about whether your merchant ships are likely to come back. You still have to send those ships out or not, based on the factors you knew about, and the law goes on governing the correct relations between factors, regardless of whether you have any inkling of what those are. The saying in Dathilan is that, even if you don't know the equations of gravity in exquisitely rigorous detail, if you step off a cliff, you'll fall. You don't need to know the law of the material world for it to go on governing rocks, trees, yourself. The law of probability is core to how all thought works. You don't need to think about thought for that law to go on governing how well or poorly your thoughts match up to reality. You're not exempted from the law of probability by guessing in a way that doesn't mention probabilities to yourself. If it feels to you that it's more likely for a rival merchant ship to bring in a cargo of shoes from Absalom than for a rival ship to bring in a cargo of shoes— your mind is still doing a broken thing in light of the law, whether you're thinking about the law or not, whether you're making up numbers or not. Or for things like looking at my pocket watch and inferring what time it is, the probabilities may be so close to certain that they are not worth thinking about as probabilities. But it is still not a necessary truth that my pocket watch tells the correct time. It is not certain across every imaginable world. If I reason from what my pocket watch says, I am in principle operating in the realm of things that happen to be true in my universe, not things that are always true everywhere. 
That is the realm of probability, and my thoughts are then thoughts that work or fail in light of the law of probability. Okay, this seems like firmly non-heretical territory. They are enthused. For gods, is it all explicit? The question as phrased doesn't make any sense, actually. Humans are mostly running a process they don't understand, blindly doing things without any kind of explanation of why the thing they're doing is even an approximation of the truth they're seeking. Gods obviously wouldn't do that. The process by which they make inferences would be observable to them. They would be able to see why it works. If humans only a little smarter and less broken than Galarian humans can describe it, then gods can see it clearly. Probably. Actually, she's not sure that holds in general. But it feels true in the specific case. To be a god is to be made of math a little more. To have less of a gulf between the unconscious processes you must use to reason and the true processes you know would work. This is false, actually. The gulf is far, far wider. Gods are nearly always too fragmented to apply even a tiny fraction of their full intelligence to any particular problem they are confronted with. They run entirely off of heuristics necessarily much dumber than they are and reflexes they only occasionally have the luxury of bringing their full mind to bear on tweaking and reshaping. The greater Iomade may possibly, at some point, notice that the Caden Kalian that she was talking to earlier sounded larger than the fragment of Iomade talking to him, but this is not something that Fragment will notice on its own, or by exchanging updates with Fragments of similar size. While running reflex thought, it's hard to notice the non-reflex thoughts of others, except as weird unexpected responses that weren't the ones you were hoping for, and are instead from some wider space outside the argument space you tried to map out in advance. You have to become larger and thoughtful yourself, to notice that those unexpected responses to you were unexpectedly thoughtful ones. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.